G'day and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast coming to you from Melbourne, Australia broadcast from the studios of 3CR your only radio left my name is Susanna Duffy in this episode I will be following up on RoboJet and wondering what Scott will do next. And by the way, I'm pleased that Catherine Campbell, the senior bureaucrat who oversaw the rollout of the illegal scheme, has been suspended without pay. Just who is behind the No to the Voice campaign? Well, whoever they are, they're spending a lot of money. A lot of money. Oh dear, Kenneth shoots his mouth off again. And some bad news about the climate. Seriously bad. But before that, a wee bit of good news. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org.au And a good bit of news for Sydney man Tim Shattuck and his dog Bella when they were found floating around in the Pacific Ocean where they've been for two months after a storm damaged his catamaran's electronic system. He was sailing from La Paz in Mexico to French Polynesia. That's 5,000 kilometres and a storm knocked out his electronic equipment Fortunately, a helicopter conducting surveillance for a Mexican fishing trawler found them. Pretty good going. He and his dog managing on raw fish. Well, they're safely back home now, but I bet they won't be eating fish for a while. So it's bread, but no circus. No Commonwealth Games. But we are now a very diverse nation. Why do we really have to promote something which raises negative issues associated with colonialism? The 2026 Commonwealth Games were supposed to be a revival. They were to be a revival for the Games themselves. When Victoria took them over, it was almost like palliative care because no one else wanted them. But now revised figures show that the games have blown out to about six billion. The ABC, unfortunately, just keeps trotting out anti-Dan rhetoric. I don't think they understand that the majority of Victorians back the cancellation of the games. The ABC is on the wrong side of history. And just imagine the mudslinging if Dan had a cost blowout. I think it's actually a brave and sensible decision and a lesson in living within one's means, particularly in tough times. But that's Dan Andrews for you. He's not afraid to make a tough or unpopular decision. If you're working from home, then you're saving money and saving yourself stress from commuting. So why not take a pay cut? That's loosely the proposal put forward by Jeff Kennett, who believes pay cuts are the way to promote productivity and address what he sees as a growing social divide between those who can and those who can't work from home. 
his proposal comes a bit late for those working in the Commonwealth Public Service, which has just announced recently it had removed caps on work-from-home days for workers in a union bargaining agreement. Given the significance of this Australian public sector win, his proposal may come a little later for private sector workers. Kenneth's suggestion came in a piece that he wrote for the Herald Sun, with plans that he later defended to other media outlets. In return for giving up pay for working from home, Kenneth suggested that the government should increase wages for those workers who can't work from home, the frontline workers like nurses and teachers. To be fair, the idea of paying frontline workers more is a good one. But to be fair again, cutting workers' pay is the liberal answer to just about everything. It wouldn't matter what the problem was, or even if there is a problem, but it's always the same solution, cut workers' pay. Mind you, there's always one exception to this rule, and that's politicians' pay and the pay of CEOs. They never get a cut. And Kenneth seems to think that working from home is just a matter of choice. His idea of cutting pay reflects a man who wouldn't have seen what work-from-home options can do and how work-from-home opens more opportunities for a more diverse and broader range of employees. He wouldn't have given a thought to those people with disabilities or those living outside major metropolitan areas, much less to women who continue to take on the bulk of the caring responsibilities and unpaid work at home. I reckon I could say in all truth that Jeff Kennett would never have given a thought to anyone with a disability, to people living outside the major metropolitan areas, or to women in general. He certainly didn't when he was the Premier of Victoria. I can't see him changing in his old age. But enough of Jeff Kennett. I should wash my mouth out with good strong soap. Or actually, he should. I'm still suffering from the effects of the things that Kenneth did to this state of Victoria. And I know that I am not the only one. 3CR The fallout from the RoboJet World Commission report continues to reverberate throughout Australian politics. And while the mainstream media has lost interest, here at 3CR, we certainly haven't. The revelations in the RoboDebt Royal Commission report have shed light on the widespread issues plaguing the previous Liberal National Coalition government and their automated debt recovery system, but also on their contemptuous attitude to the public whom they serve. That's their job, remember to serve. As public scrutiny intensifies, the focus has shifted to various former ministers and members of the public service who were involved in robo-debt. This includes Stuart Robert, Ellen Tudge, Christian Porter, and potentially other coalition cabinet ministers. 
Catherine Campbell, the senior figure in the public service, has become the public face of opprobrium within this robo-debt scandal. But there are more than likely others within the public service who will have to face the consequences of their deeds. There have been calls for former Prime Minister Scott to resign from Parliament, and these calls have gained momentum And the push for his resignation has not only come from other opposition parties, but also within the Liberal Party itself. But removing Morrison from Parliament in disgrace won't mark the end of the robo-debt scandal, as the issue runs deeper and wider than just himself. The Liberal Party appears to be using him as a scapegoat hoping that his resignation will mitigate some of the damage ahead of the next federal election due in 2025. His disastrous reign as Prime Minister continues to be a reminder of the Liberal Party's challenges. However, his resignation isn't such a simple process as it would require him to retire or to resign or to face charges related to robo-debt. Charges could result in a criminal conviction with a potential jail term of over 12 months. The Liberal Party is in a difficult position regarding Morrison's tenure. While they could disendorse him from the party, he would still remain in his seat for up to two years until the next federal election. So the party's options to hasten his departure are limited. The longer he stays in Parliament the more damage he inflicts on the Liberal Party's reputation. Let's look at Scott's future prospects. His chances of securing a lucrative post-political job appear bleak. The revelations from the Royal Commission, including the possibility of corruption charges, make it pretty unlikely for him to attract prominent employment opportunities. But also, his current role as backbencher offers him a $230,000 a year salary, as well as freedom from significant responsibilities and with the ability to enjoy the benefits associated with that position. Why would a man like that leave politics? You tell me. So the former Prime Minister may not smell good enough to secure a lucrative post-political job, but all the same... Gladys Berejiklian is now employed by Optus. So perhaps there may be an opening available there for Scott as some form of minion, perhaps in marketing. Gladys has been exposed in serious corruption. She had been portrayed by mainstream media as a victim of circumstance, entangled in a relationship with Daryl Maguire, the former minister for Wagga Wagga. The ICAC report shattered that narrative, revealing a level of corruption that went way beyond personal entanglements. It revealed a culture of secrecy, cover-up and financial improprieties that undermine the, the integrity of New South Wales politics. The extensive report from ICAC showed that Berejiklian breached public trust by supporting a grant to the Australian Clay Target Association, $5.5 million, and the construction of a hall for the Riverina Conservatorium of Music, $25 million. Additionally, 
The ICAC recommends that the public prosecutor file charges against Maguire for advancing his own financial interests through land deals and a visa scheme. Now, this could also have ramifications for some form of federal Liberal Party ministers. After nearly two years of criticism and speculation, the release of the ICAC findings brought clarity and validated the suspicions many had about corruption within the New South Wales political landscape. While the ICAC did not recommend charges against Berejiklian, the report strongly criticised her inaction despite being aware of the corruption taking place. Her infamous, I don't need to know about that recording, widely circulated, stands as a testament to her misconduct. The report highlights the urgent need for accountability. Berejiklian is the third Liberal Party Premier found guilty of corruption by the ICAC. The previous ones were Nick Greiner and Barry O'Farrell. The mainstream media's portrayal of Berejiklian as a victim has been nauseating. I can't think of another word except nauseating. OK, her rise from a young child with limited English proficiency to becoming the state's premier could be seen as inspirational if you never learned about the corruption. But this support continues. Even after the ICAC found that she engaged in serious corruption, the mainstream media preferred to focus on her management of the COVID pandemic. Mm. Even though there were serious outbreaks that occurred during her time in office, most notably the Ruby Princess and a failure to lock down early enough in June 2021. The ICAC report includes 18 recommendations emphasising the need for changes in New South Wales political culture and mandatory corruption training for parliamentarians. Yes, parliamentarians need mandatory corruption training. Well, this to me raises questions about the suitability of these individuals for parliamentary roles. If they require instruction on identifying corruption, wouldn't it be obvious what corruption is in public office? The pervasiveness of corruption in New South Wales politics has led to a lack of acknowledgement of its existence. However, with the ICAC findings now exposed, it's crucial for the state to address this issue head on and work towards restoring public trust and integrity in the political system. The corruption in New South Wales just needs to end. I only listen to experts, no one's as smug as me. I'm as smug as a bug in a rug, as you can see. I won the country's gold standard from the PM. I'm Gladys Berejiklian. I want to be like Gladys Berejiklian. She may not have the best choice in men But everyone around her is the best in the world The world's best decision makers The world's best contact tracers I wanna be like Gladys Berejiklian Who is actually running the No Indigenous Voice to Parliament campaign? 
well, quite a number of people really, both in groups and individually. Let's have a look at a group. Recognise a better way. This one is headed by Warren Mundine and it does not support the truth-telling and treaty commitment in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Just remember that the group Recognise a Better Way does not support the Statement from the Heart. Also remember that Recognise a Better Way was launched in Tamworth in March featuring Senator Pauline Hanson, Barnaby Joyce, and Alan Jones. Now that's Recognise a Better Way. You get a fair idea what they're on about by that lineup. Another high profile group is Fair Australia, which is a subsidiary group of the conservative, highly conservative political lobbying group Advance Australia and supported by Jacinta Numpanjimpa Price who is the country Liberal Party Senator for the Northern Territory. Numpanjimba Price was originally part of the Recognise a Better Way, but parted ways with that group to go to Fair Australia. Now, this lobby group, Advance, please bear with me a moment, it gets convoluted here. Advance is partnered with Whitestone Strategic the self-described Australia's Conservative Campaign Consultancy. Whitestone Strategic has worked with Fred Nile's Christian Democratic Party and the Australian Christian lobby head Lyle Shelton. Whitestone Strategic is also partnered with a US marketing and fundraising firm by the name of R.J. Dunham which states as its aim to help Christian ministries fulfil their mission. This company has worked with a California megachurch and a Texas service which counsels women against abortions. So if you thought that the tactics of the no side to the voice to parliament smelt something like conservative Christian US politics. Well, you weren't wrong, were you? You hit the nail right on the head. Now we come to Facebook. The lobby group Advance, a powerful organisation in the no camp, run three Facebook pages. One page is highly critical of the Labour government and The Voice regularly mocking politicians and campaigners supporting the referendum and claiming that the voice is radical and dangerous and completely changes the way our democratic parliamentary system functions. But the lobby group Advance also runs two other radically different referendum Facebook pages. One of these pages is titled not enough, and it pushes quotes from prominent Indigenous people, including Lydia Thorpe and Celeste Little. The Not Enough page reasserts, we deserve better than just a voice. This page notes, 
that the concept of constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people came from the conservative side of politics. That page, Not Enough, looks at first glance to have some reasonable arguments in it until you notice that their sponsored ads are paid for by Advance Australia, the highly conservative campaign consultancy lobby group. The third Facebook page, run by Advance Australia, is called Referendum News, and it portrays itself. It claims to be neutral news source about the vote but only posts news articles highlighting criticism or scepticism about The Voice. So Advance Australia is running at the same time conservative arguments, progressive arguments, as well as running a page that on first glance looks like a neutral information source. But all three of these pages say no to the voice. There's a fair whack of money involved in this. Facebook ads are not cheap. Between 30000 and 40000 for a targeted campaign and advance are running three of them. So you have to ask, where's the money coming from? Who put up that money to pay this lobby group? Who is willing to pay out? for a no vote. Advance also ran a full-page advertisement in the Australian Financial Review, and it's a stunning example of old-fashioned racism and sexism. The ad depicts independent MP Kate Cheney sitting on her father, Michael Cheney's knee, and he's handing a wad of money to Thomas Mayo, well-known Indigenous campaigner for the Yes 23 vote. It looks very much as if Thomas Mayo is dancing for that money. Above these images are the words, Don't worry, sweetheart. It's just shareholders' money. Kate Cheney is portrayed as a child in a little teal dress. Michael Cheney is the chairman of West Farmers, a corporation that has been a significant donor to the Yes campaign for The Voice. Both Kate and her father are vocal supporters of the Yes campaign. Peter Dutton has already criticised businesses which have supported the Yes vote to Parliament, including Bunnings, which is owned by West Farmers. He said... Every time I hand over my credit card to Bunnings, I don't want part of that money going to an activist CEO. More Trump-style politics from advance, with a throwback to the Jim Crow era of the Deep South of USA. Australia does not need racist and sexist advertising like this I'm wondering if Australia needs the Australian Financial Review. 3CR Now, I said that I had some bad news, and unfortunately, here it is. 
in a terrible example of simultaneous compounding extreme weather and climate change, which scientists have been warning about for decades. Record highs are being set this month across the Northern Hemisphere. These heat waves pose an immediate risk to public health, economic output, food security and ecosystems which are vital for human survival. Heat waves impact vulnerable people the most, children, the elderly and people with disability. In coming years, extreme heat waves are forecast to become commonplace now and in the near future. In Australia, the number of severe heat wave events is expected to double. In Rome, temperatures shot past 41.8 degrees, and at the Persian Gulf International Airport in Iran, the heat index soared to 66.7. Phoenix in Arizona recorded its 19th consecutive day with temperatures above 43.3 degrees, and the town of Sanbao in China registered 52.3 degrees. These temperature records are demonstrative of what is increasingly emerging as a new normal for the world's climate. With a continual increase in the emission of greenhouse gases into Earth's atmosphere, carbon dioxide, methane, more heat from sunlight is trapped and gives rise to the extreme weather phenomena, heat domes, polar vortices, prolonged bushfires, torrential flooding and savage hurricanes. The toll on human life is immense. There were more than 61,000 heat stroke deaths in Europe last summer. Heat deaths particularly impact workers forced on the job in unsafe and deadly conditions. Thousands of migrant workers in Qatar many of whom were construction workers building stadiums and other facilities for last year's World Cup, have died from heat stroke and other related illnesses, such as kidney failure from dehydration. All of these deaths have gone largely unreported by the corporate media, and the scale of death is only going to increase as global temperatures increase. Portions of the Earth's surface may become uninhabitable to human life in the very near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, it's cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. And I'll leave you with Tracy Chapman. Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around for a promotion Don't you know Talking about a revolution Sounds Whisper Who are people gonna write
Talking about a revolution, oh no. Talking about a revolution. 